From somewhere deep in the cloud and the corners of the earth, this is the Killing It Podcast, with a focus on helping you make sense and dollars of all things IT, with your hosts, Dave Sobel, Ryan Morris, and Carl Polichuk. Welcome to episode 145 of the Killing It Killing podcast and welcome to 2022 hey roll over (laughs) observation we made it the world's still here yet another random event on the calendar (laughs) all right so if you had gents if you inherited or won a million dollars what's the very first thing you would do with the money pay the taxes okay not that (laughs) Oh, all right. Well, like literally, I have a list of people. I've thought about this many, many times. I literally have a list of people that to whom I would give a hundred thousand dollars. Like this, this will make your life better, and I appreciate everything you've done for me, right? And um, and then I'd spend the other seven dollars on something else. See, and and again, I have also thought about this. Um, I I find you know you buy you spend five dollars, you spend a little bit of time you know buying a lottery ticket. You you think about it, you brainstorm. I find it reasonably entertaining, kind of like watching a television show. What would you do, right? Uh, Step number one for those of us who've overthought this never going to happen thing: uh, hire a lawyer and disconnect your cell phone and get a burner and then go about making a bunch of decisions about what good you're going to do to change the world. Because if you don't hire the lawyer first, all the people are going to come out of the woodwork and start asking you for things. All those cousins you didn't know you had? Yes. Exactly. See, I, maybe my, my first call is to my fan, financial planner, like which, which, is, which is so boring, and, but, but that's completely what it is. First move uh, is probably what he tells me to do. Because, because mostly because because of exactly what you sort of said is, is I want to make sure that I manage it reasonably well, and maybe I'm a little too silly on that kind of stuff. But I have also long since learned to take that advice when asked for it, for the same reason that, by the way, I give technology advice. I take the financial advice, uh, so that's probably the first move is whatever well, he but, tells me. But really, I mean, the question should be towards your dreams, not towards the practical side. Like for me. Yeah. I always think of, well, if I got only a million and then you pay 50% in taxes, I'm like, okay, that's not enough left over for me to go to a financial planner. I'll just put right. it in the bank. You know, exactly. now if it were 6 million and then you get to keep three, now you have decisions to make. If it's a hundred million, I literally have no idea. Like I, I, my brain doesn't go big enough to know what good I could do with that. Well, that isn't this question. <laughs> perhaps next time. <laughs> Maybe uh, next time. And instead, next Next time, make sure to sign up for Killing It Live. We're doing it on January 19th. Register at killingitlive.com. Join us for the extended episode. You'll get to see us warm up. You'll get to hear the extra fourth topic. uh, And only happens for those live on January 19th. Sign up at killingitlive.com. But today, we're brought to you by our friends at Calyptix. Cybersecurity for small business is overwhelming. Unprecedented threats, escalating rhetoric, and limited resources. So lean on your community. The Calyptix Community Shield automatically unites small businesses and raises the costs and challenges for cyber criminals by harnessing threat intelligence from our community. If they attack any one of us, everyone gets the benefit with Community Shield. An example, a log4j block list for scanners and exploits rolled out specifically for outbound events. All for no added costs. By working together, we will prevail. Learn more at Calyptic.com, and when you do, 
Tell them the guys from Killing It sent you. So sadly, we begin the year with an article we're going to point to and a report from Experian that is kind of, it sort of sums up 2021 from the security perspective. And it is basically, if you think about an epidemic, well, what they call the cyberdemic of data breaches will continue for the foreseeable future. And uh, it's not going to get any better in 2022. Uh, and they talk, they walk through some of the the record-breaking numbers. And of course, you've heard these numbers a thousand times. But basically, there's a combination of things. Changing technology makes breaches a little easier. Changing weather patterns makes the you know human element a little more fragile, uh, and so forth. It's really a, a new generation of technology challenges. It's ahead of us, and so. This is worth knowing to know what you're going to do. And I just have to ask, like, what what are the independent IT consultants actually doing other than praying that their clients will not be the ones who get hit? Yeah, so it's, it's sad because I made this prediction in my 2022 series uh, prediction series. I essentially said, like, you know, and I didn't go out even on a limb saying, like, it's going to get worse. Uh, my data points, again, is, is, of course, they're predicting in 2020 by 2024, a G20 nation will respond in, to a cyber attack with a physical attack. Things have to get worse to get to that status point. So so it, it seems inevitable. And, and do you think that they mean like this is literally a physical attack against North Korea and yes. Kim? Yes, the, the, predic the prediction is, is that a cyber attack will get retaliated by a G20 nation in a physical way. So that's that's the escalation. And that so, can't be good because you're talking Russia, North Korea, possibly yeah. China. Like, yeah. yeah. So, so it is getting it is getting worse. Uh, where I've been thinking about this a lot for for most is I want to start talking about this more the way public health officials talk about conditions on the on the ground. And by the way, we should all be pretty familiar with that. We've been dealing with that for two years. Right. Think about think about the way public health is communicated. It is a generally moving target, right, where uh, they where there is a set of known things and a bunch of things you don't know. And oftentimes they make it's the whole like complexity of risk analysis kind of stuff, which is all the same stuff we see in security. But what public health officials are very careful about doing is also making sure to convey certain thematic things that everyone can do. I get it that security is this super complicated space. 80% of businesses look exactly the same. They look exactly the same, meaning that there has got to be a base set of things that 80% will cover those 80% of companies that if they do these four things differently, they will start making some progress. Uh, my, my, I want us to talk about it more like that, and we need to think, figure out what those three or four things are. Because by the way, they can change, think to your pandemic experience. They went from masking to get vaccinated to get boosted. Like we've had clear direction along the way, knowing it is imperfect, right? Knowing it is imperfect, but it gives you some kind of guidance. The second thing that you asked specifically what small providers can do, you better have a playbook. You really need to, these should not be reinventing the wheel every single time. You got to have a playbook of what you're going to do to re, to respond. Well, and, and again, where there is mystery, there is margin and opportunity. And this is, uh, again, a very sobering look at what we predict will happen in the cybersecurity field in the next 12 months. 
uh, there are a couple of very new things, and then there are some really aggressive amplifications of ongoing trends. When the world fell into the hole of the pandemic and we were all automatically forced to go home, work remotely, and adapt in a moment, we were all suitably impressed by just how rapidly businesses were able to adapt to that new environment and become not just functional, but legitimately productive. But what they did not do, and we all called this out, I remember all three of us on an episode uh, literally 18 months ago making a point that says, uh, incidentally, when you go from one local area network inside your corporate facility to 5, 10, 50, 500 independent remote networks that are all accessing the central corporate store, your security profile and threat vectors have increased exponentially. And we have not solved that problem, right? The industry has not yet found a way. It's super easy to go home and log on to the internet and join a Zoom call and just start talking to your coworkers and customers. It is not nearly as easy or prescribed to make sure that that's secure, to make sure that individual behaviors are compliant with expectations. This is something that Again, this represents massive opportunity. I also want to highlight a point that they make in here about new digital assets. Right, We've been spending time talking about cryptocurrency, uh, the, the, the blockchain environment, the NFT world, and how some of those things are uh, phenomenally important and others of them are just stupid. Um, what, what this report also calls out is just because those assets are not yet hackable, does not mean the same thing as they are never hackable, right? There once was a day where nobody could defeat a 32-bit encryption. That's not that hard anymore. Now we're at 64 and we will defeat that. As we progress, we all, people say things like, well, the blockchain is an immutable permanent record. It's only immutable so far because nobody has yet figured out how to hack it and alter it. They're going to. And I want to loop back to Dave's comment about the playbook, because, Ryan, you're talking about you got the, the everybody's in the office. You got one playbook. Everybody's home. You got a different playbook. And then you have three different kinds of hybrid. You got three more playbooks. I remember being on stage one time and asking a, a particular group of people like I just made this comment like, OK, you all know what you would do if somebody broke into your, your client server or, or your, uh, your primary backup failed, you know what you do, thing one, thing two, thing three. And I got all these stares of people who were like, you, I haven't really, you know, I'm like, oh, wait, stop, you have to know. These are your clients and you designed the backup system. You have to know how you would respond. And, you know, sometimes people act as if we don't know. But, you know, again, taking uh, advice from the medical community, there is a standard procedure, whether you like it or not, for how you respond to things. And we absolutely have to have that. And it has to be updated from what it was 18 months ago, three years ago, five years ago, 10 years ago. Well, right. and, and there's it, plenty of work that we get to be done. Well, and in a related story, right? We've recently talked about the idea that complicated environments require you to approach them differently. We are really struggling to apply new tools to old ways of doing our jobs in the in the managed services community. It, it's not the tools that are the problem. 
We've got phenomenally capable assets and tools for approaching cybersecurity. The question is, how are you using those tools? Not well yet is the general observation. Well, I'm going to pivot us then on tools and move us on to topic number two. Uh, in the context of the Log4j discussions that are certainly happening all over the interwebs, uh, the internet runs on open source software. Uh, however, in particular, this Log4j piece is a couple of volunteers that are working on keeping it alive. Uh, this has brought up the conversation of how do we professionally manage the cost of this. And in particular, there's been conversations around the idea of a software bill of materials. The idea that businesses and users need to know what's in the software in order to make decisions around it. And let me highlight that the uh, Biden executive order around cybersecurity includes clauses around the software bill of materials. I want to bring this debate a little bit up to, to get our senses of it, in particular, as I think about, like, how do we pay for this stuff? But more importantly, like, are things like software bills of materials even a good idea? Because I've included a uh, counter argument around the software bill of materials idea that says, essentially, that isn't really even going to solve it. Most people won't be able to do it. And they also can't necessarily be trusted and it doesn't actually end up being actionable. Gents, how do we unwind the problem around the downside of open source? Open source is a great thing, except when we're relying on three guys working continual weekends to solve the world's security problems. I'm reminded of last week's discussion of complex versus complicated, right? I mean, at, at some level, what happens in open source is that I take ownership of a certain part of code, I install it, and if something's broken, I can either go to the community, go to the author, go to the vendor who took the op open source and turned it into a saleable product, or hire somebody in-house to fix it myself. I have lots of lots of options. And many people are fundamentally good-hearted, and they find solutions, and they post them publicly, and everybody downloads it, and everybody fixes it, and life is good. But... I can completely foresee, again, the cybersecurity question of people, bad guys, playing the long game and implementing code that is presumed to be safe for three or four or five years and then executing it. So ultimately, it's almost like we have to have a kill switch. But the question is, if you kill the internet, <laughs> uh, reboot it on Thursday, how do you start over? I mean, in some ways, we don't have any choice to, but to keep patching for the rest of eternity. Well, and Carl, that so A, I hadn't stopped to think of it that way, and that was incredibly chilling. Um, you're right. The long game is the problem we do not know how to defend against. But I want to make sure people realize just how tangible and real this is, right? If we abstract our conversation to the internet or to iOS or Android, uh, most of us at the local level go, eh, not my issue, I'm not gonna pay attention to that. But allow me to observe, you, there's not a single piece of software that you personally use on your device, on your laptop, on the cloud, that does not contain open source components, right? Uh, in a world of software development, we use a fundamental architectural approach called rapid application development or object-oriented programming. If you need to have a screen rendering utility in your application, 
you could A, sit down and write about 100,000 lines of code to do that, or B, take an object off the internet from open source and plug it in and use that thing in your application. Every one of us in our industry has felt the pain this very last calendar year, right? When, when we were reminded that the applications and tools vendors that we rely on to do our jobs they themselves might be vulnerable to breaches and hacks. And when that happens to them, it rolls downhill to us and it impacts our customers. Every single piece of software in the modern world contains this kind of stuff. And if you are taking pieces from here, there and everywhere and then assembling them into what you call a software application, the vulnerability uh, profile is, it's, it's not just exponential, it's algorithmic, it, it's, it's logarithmic, it, it's frightening to think of the potential attack vectors that somebody could use. And as Carl put it, uh, they might not even bother to scare you with it today when you install the software. They might just come back as soon as you've forgotten it in three years and then melt down your world. That's well, very I frightening. I've got two points I want to make on this. The, fir the first is, is I think we've lost track of the free is in, free is in freedom, not free is in beer element of <laughs> open source software. Seriously, like too many software vendors treat it like it's a free beer that I got something that I didn't have to pay for and I just get it and now there's nothing I have to do. And they really ought to have some responsibility for the fact that, look, this was all done. I did not have to, it is not free beer. I don't get to necessarily then, you know, drink it and not have to worry about it. I have to contribute to its maintenance ongoing. I think there should be some structures to this. I think organizations like Apache should consider whether or not they have a way for to get a bill to those that use software not be not because they have to be penalized but because they need a way of directing funds when we need to ramp up development maybe we should pay the people that are having to fix all of the world's problems right now so that their or their company can get reimbursed you know for their time away while it gets fixed we can build a, a system of commercial engagement that big companies can understand for the use of this and it still be more efficient than uh, than what we're you know what we're looking at now. It's funny. So I I'm probably the most capitalist on this podcast, and I would argue that putting money in that situation would kind of muck things up a bit. I think about Wikipedia, which used to be a laughing stock because anybody could you know go in there and and replace reality with their version of reality, and now. It has become quite self-regulating and do, doing a, a very good job, in my opinion. I think the, the open source developers would tell you that putting money in the equation and then keeping track of money uh, would keep young people with great ideas from participating in that open source environment. And Well, your example is exactly the way that I'm thinking, though, Carl because Wikipedia does take donations and does subsidize some of its own maintenance and system in order to have the overarching piece. That is my implication is, is that but there they, but needs they don't to pay be a, writers, which is the 
like the core thing they need, right? And well, you, well, you're right, but but what I what they what we we may need in software though is is for example, I don't know, Log4j. Those people need a little bit of help right now. It would be nice to direct them. So I, I'm just offering that because the second thing that I want to offer is is I want to address the software bill of materials piece. And while I think that this is, you know, I want everyone to read the kind of thinking on why this isn't a great idea. It's always interesting to me how lots of people in the software space will often go, well, that's going to be really hard. And I think that has a whole bunch of unintended consequences. <laughs> you know, right now, there's a real big mess. And sometimes we have to iterate and try things and get things a little bit right. Yeah, this I'm not necessarily saying it will instantly solve things, but maybe we should take our own advice, iterate and try a little bit to get a little closer and see if we can make a ding on it versus going, I don't think that's going to work. The, and, yeah. and I will I will agree with you that there needs to be some mechanism or environment in which we can observe and control this stuff. But I'm going to point everybody to that link in, in our show notes and, and pay attention to the little meme uh, with our friend Gru from Despicable Me. It, it tells the story about why the architectural approach to the software bill of materials is just fundamentally flawed. We want you to give us accurate vulnerability information about your software. We don't believe you can do that. So what I want you to do is give me a list of every single thing you've ever put into your software so that I personally can now be responsible for finding out which ones are broken. And then I'll come back and ask you for, wait for it, uh, accurate information about software vulnerabilities. Oh, and now we're in the doom loop, right? Can't, it, it, there, there needs to be a different way. But let's move on to topic number three. Uh, a to are you, gentlemen, a quick question for you. Are you chess players? I'm a very bad chess player. I'm I'm a just a step up from very bad and mostly bad. <laughs> See, this is the thing, right? Every time I've ever asked that question to a person, you you know who you're talking to because anybody who actually plays the game describes themselves as a very bad chess player because it is inherently very very complicated, and yet it has become again mainstreamed and part of the very sexy part of our mass media environment. Uh, for those of you who didn't watch The Queen's Gambit, holy cow, that was good television. You should go back and watch that. But the topic that we're getting to here is the implications of machines versus humans in not just the chess world specifically, but more broadly speaking, into the world of technology and I would argue cybersecurity. So uh, they're talking about how grandmasters in the world of chess, they are trained from childhood using computer engines in the chess software world that can process and predict moves radically further into the future than the human brain is capable of. And then once you are trained that way, you become undefeatable. And yet, just this year, for the very first time in the last five years since this became the dominant way of doing things, somebody actually won the Grandmaster Championship. It wasn't just a draw where, where they, they went forever and ever and eventually could not resolve. Somebody won. And the way they won was by using the machine and its logic to go exactly in the opposite direction and do something illogical, creative, and essentially human. I think this is one of the most interesting stories I've read in a very long time. Gents, what do you think about this and its implications for our world of technology? Oh, you jumped to exactly the bit that I, I did, which was that there is opportunity in the bit that isn't seen. 
that for that the the computer has has mapped out all of the logical most progressive pieces, but it hasn't looked necessarily at everything, and it, it has these areas that it has actually dismissed or suggested are not great ideas, but then humans can look at that creatively and say, oh, I know how to exploit this and take my opponent into somewhere that they are not comfortable with and thus have an advantage and win. This is the kind of thinking that I, that I latch onto going, yeah, that was why we will always be able to stay at some level against certain types of AI, ML, model type stuff is if we're able to continue to do that, we are able to outsmart the machine at some level or outsmart the humans relying too much on the machine. And that thinking is really what I walked away from this article going, oh, yeah, that's cool. That's where I want to spend my time. <laughs> well, I, just a side note. So this is how old I am. I remember playing chess against Bobby Fischer, who was the world champion. He came to uh, my little town and there were like 130 people in a big round table. And the, his rules were when I step in front of you, you make your move and then I make my move. If you pause one second, I will just go on to the next person. And, you know, so... And he was rude and arrogant, and he uh, beat me in like four moves or something. It was ridiculous. <laughs> so that's how bad I am. But I get to say I played Bobby Fischer. So when I read this article, the first thing that came to mind for me is from Star Trek. Remember when Data plays this game against this guy, and they put these things on his finger? And he never wins, but he draws. And the reason he's able to draw and frustrate his opponent is that his opponent assumed he was trying to win. And that is exactly what is happening here. And it's interesting because I don't want to beat up cybersecurity until, you know, it's the only thing we talk about. But how do we defeat these bad guys is to say, okay, what game are they playing that might not be the game you think they're playing? And ultimately, that's going to defeat AI and, um, you know, the, the attacks that we've seen. Well, and it's also those very same reason, Carl, that exact logic is why everybody who thinks that they know what they are doing in the world of cybersecurity tools needs to pause and very carefully reconsider who you are playing against. We can define the playing board, right? We can set the boundaries. We can implement zero trust and whitelisting and, and bad systems are not allowed in. And we can deploy a layered security approach of all of the tools and we know what the pieces are for and how they move and how they interact. And we can script standard operating procedures for maintenance and for monitoring and for systems and incident management. Um, and then a human on the other side is going to think differently from all of the tools that you are using and they're going to be creative now think about it right a, a very tangible way one of the most effective hacks that we've had to deal with as an industry and we now all take it totally for granted right is the thumb drive right there once was a time where the most reliable way to hack into the most secure and sophisticated systems in the world was to just leave a, a thumb drive on the sidewalk outside because we all look at that and went ooh look a free thing and we took it inside and we plugged it in and it deployed a payload of malware and it defeated our systems now that's not the most sophisticated attack it's not the most difficult to defend but dang it was creative and we didn't think of it before they did, and that's why it worked. 
the, the chess metaphor for the world of cybersecurity, I think is a brilliant metaphor. No matter how studied you are, no matter how many times you have done this, it is your opponent that defines the rules of engagement and you have to be prepared for them to be just a little more creative than any of your sophisticated infrastructure and layered security. Well, there, <laughs> drop the drop the truth bomb right there. Look, I, I think to, to link it around back to a broader business strategy, like, look, again, the opportunity is always to figure out the space that isn't as well covered. Um, you know, I'm, I'm going to tie it up for a lot of small providers and go, look, I've been kind of railing on traditional old school thinking around endpoint management, your bronze, silver, paper, tin, copper, garbage managed services plans. Why? Because everybody does that and is doing the same thing and all looks the same. That is also called a commodity business, everyone. <laughs> if you want to go explore something that is different, you're going to have to go into an area that isn't necessarily as well charted as everywhere else. If there was a complete formula and all things I could just buy and do, everyone would be doing it and it is not nearly as valuable <laughs> so so for me it's this area of like look i get it everyone wants like the answer and the definitive thing sometimes you got to venture out into the unknown because that is where the actual opportunity really does lie well and i would say just to put a pin on that that we are now in an era that we have avoided for probably 10 years we are in an era where we have to be educated we have to know what we're deploying. We have to understand the technology. You can't just, you know, say, oh, if I don't understand it, I'll go on YouTube and figure out how to configure this backup and disaster recovery device. You cannot do that anymore. We have to be educated in as many things as possible. And maybe you can't know everything there is to know on the Internet. But oh. what you can know is everything that you deploy. And you should master that knowledge to the point where you can be secure with it. And that takes effort. And so the people who put out the effort will make more money. And the people who just do what everybody else is doing, plus or minus 1%, they will become commodities. And we've been moving in that direction for a long, long time. And now I remember from last week, we had a whole conversation that you can't know it all anymore, that it is now literally too much to know everything. So you're going to have to balance that I must be educated with I can also not know everything. Well, so I there's, have there's to... power in acknowledging I don't know everything and I need to know more than I do. And so I'm not going to stop learning just because I'm ridiculously successful and I'm 35 years old. Well, and, and, yeah. and again, think about it this way, right? Any one of us for $99 can purchase a chess software engine application that contains the most advanced and complex analysis of the world of chess, infinite possibilities and permutations for $99. It doesn't mean you know how to use it and it doesn't mean you are a grand master. But if you can become, as Carl describes, if you can become the master of the cybersecurity world because you know how they think and how to use it better, uh, the the grandmaster makes way more money than the guy who writes the software code. <laughs> <laughs> and sadly, with that happy note, we are at the end of episode 145 of the Killing It, Killing it. podcast. Thanks for tuning in to the Killing It podcast. Please share with your friends and tell everyone to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and all the podcast places. 
Join us next week and help us keep killing it in the technology business.